Thank you very much, Mostyn. We've just had one of Giovanni's excellent lunches. It's two o'clock in the afternoon. The sun is warming us, at least on this side of the room. Temptation to snee- uh, to snooze, sneeze. So obviously, uh, what I need to give you is some Hebrew grammar to uh, keep you all awake this afternoon. On the subject of Hebrew grammar, uh, there is a mistake on the list of Hebrew and Greek study days. Somebody very sharp-eyed pointed out to me this morning that the 9th of June is put down for both a Hebrew and a Greek study day, and that won't happen. And obviously, uh, if there is such a clash, Hebrew takes precedent. So the Greek day is actually on the 2nd of June, not the 9th of June. And Gary mentioned this morning about the opportunity to do this, to do these study days through a webinar. And at the moment there are, there's a, a group forming in Leeds and another one in the East Midlands based in the Loughborough area. So if you are near to either of those and you want to join in with them, uh, please see me afterwards. Or as Gary said, if you want to form your own group somewhere, then can you talk to me about that afterwards? So, we are here, I guess, all of us, because we believe there is meaning in the biblical text. And it is not simply that we impose meaning on the biblical text or we find something in the biblical text and relate it to something we want to say and force meaning into it. We believe that there is a meaning in the biblical text and we are trying to find that meaning. We're trying to understand what the text meant when it was originally given and then we are trying to preach what it means to our congregations. And so what I want to do this afternoon is um, think about how that meaning is conveyed, looking particularly at the Abraham narratives and looking at one particular um, aspect, and that is literary and theological motifs in Old Testament narratives, looking at the Abraham narratives as an example. But I'm just going to begin before that uh, to, to illustrate what is a motif. So I'm beginning in, in Genesis 11, 1 to 9, the Babel story, because it's very easy to de- demonstrate there, although actually half my work was done for me this morning because we had a chiastic structure for a large chunk of Genesis this morning. Well, there's a little chiasm in Genesis 11. Some of you are probably aware of this anyway. Um, a, there is a mirroring of words. So you have the same words occurring in the first half of that narrative and in the second half. And that mirroring focuses your attention on the two-word phrase, the Lord came down, two words in Hebrew. And that clearly identifies that as the key, the hinge, the turning point, uh, the key motif in that narrative. Well, that's all well and good. You can see that in English. But there's also, there are things that you can't see in English, you can only see in Hebrew. There is the use of uh, similar sounding words, the technical word is consonants, words that sound the same. And so we've got the root bil barnar, uh, to make brick, lavain, lavan, confuse, barlal, and particularly the word letters confuse, first plural cohortative, navalar, and Babylon, barvel. And you know there's a pun there made at the end, isn't there? It, that's why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused. Well, that doesn't make sense listening in English, but in Hebrew it's there, is a play on words. 
And so you've got these similar sounding words throughout the uh, Tower of Babel story. So that's a, a literary motif that you can't see so easily in an English text. So I want to make three preliminary points about literary and theological motifs. The first is that some of them are lost in translation. You can't see all of these in an English text. Some of them you can, some of the features you can, repeated words, but not all of them. And as we'll see when we look particularly at the Ra'ah motif in uh, the Abraham stories, it's not immediately obvious in an English translation because the English translation will have to use words like provide, appear, um, show, which are all different verbs from the verb to see in English, but they're all from the same root in Hebrew. The second thing is, of course, there is a great danger in overemphasizing literary and theological motifs. And without naming names, there are some commentaries where you feel it's like swimming through treacle when they start talking about the structures of passages and chapters. And they've got extensive diagrams with A, B, C down to G and then F dash, E dash and so on. And you think how much of this is really there and how much of it is some is, is the cleverness of the exegete. There is that danger, and there is the danger of seeing a motif behind every green tree and on every high hill. So that's a a caveat. Thirdly, even if you can identify that there is a motif, you've still got to ask, why is it used? Is it stylistic, or is it substantial and theological? Um, You know, why does Psalm 119 use the uh, letters of the alphabet because you can't memorize Psalm 119 any easier by knowing that it's an alphabetical acrostic than otherwise and you certainly can't memorize the first four chapters of Lamentations any easier because they're alphabetically arranged especially given that some of the alphabet is in a different order in some of the chapters Um, why are they there? in the first chapter of Ruth I think there are 12 occurrences of the root shuv to return But why? What does it mean? Barry Webb says this generates an atmosphere of repentance. And much as I love Barry Webb as a a writer, and I think he has great insights, I disagree with him on that particular question. I think it's an atmosphere of returning. Yes, the, the verb shuv to return is a verb used for repentance, but it's when it's returning to the Lord, turning from sin. So even if you can identify a motif... And even if you can uh, make a case out for it being theological and not just stylistic, you've still got to say, why is it there? But, well, I will attempt to do some of all that with the Abraham story. So, we're talking about one particular very common verb. I'm putting some Hebrew upon the screen today because I know some of you know Hebrew. If you don't, it doesn't matter. It won't hurt you. And you won't be, you'll be you know, it's not going to be a case of you not understanding what I'm saying. But I'm putting it there anyway. So, this verb in Hebrew... Ra'ah, these are the three consonants, uh, reading right to left, obviously, resh, an R sound, a glottal stop. A glottal stop is um, what a lot of little bottles. Those are glottal stops instead of T's. The uh sound and then the H on the end, ra'ah, is the Hebrew verb to see. And these are some of the words in the Abraham narratives, and I've put the ra'ah, the root letters, what we call the root letters of the verb, so that you can see there that those, this occurs commonly 
throughout the Abraham narratives in, in various different forms, in nouns, in verbs, participles, and so on. And I'm also, so I'm going to argue that there is a ra motif, that the verb to see is a motif throughout the Abraham narratives. I'm going to argue it's significant. It's not just accidental. And you see another example is in the first chapter of Jonah, there's the, the root yarav, to go down, which occurs several times. And you've probably heard people preaching that about it's a sort of motif. Jonah is going down. From the moment he disobeys God, he's going down. Goes down to Jopri, goes down into a ship and so on. Other people have said, no, it's not. It's just the verb you would use in that circumstance. So I'm arguing that ra'a is there. It is a motif. And it's not just literary, it's theological. It conveys meaning. And that's really what I'm going to argue, that it helps us to see what is the overarching theme of the Abraham narrative. And therefore, it provides an an interpretive framework. And that means, therefore, that if you have to preach on a passage like Genesis 16, that Mustin read that little excerpt from at the beginning, you know where you're going before you even look at Genesis 16, because you know that there is this framework that the, the, the inspired author of the Abraham narratives is using the verb to see to tell us what it's all about, then that helps you when it comes to preaching the incidents of the Abraham narrative. Now the first thing I've got to deal with is frequency, because of course ra'a is an extremely common verb, um, probably somewhere in here, I've got information as to how common it is, but hundreds of times, hundreds of times in the Old Testament. So frequency alone does not identify that something as being a motif, because if it did, then the verb to say would be the motif of every narrative in the Old Testament. So it's not just that this this word occurs frequently, and and actually, I would say, not in every case that it does occur in the Abraham narratives is it actually significant. I think there are times when you've just got to say see um, but there are times I think when it is significant there are times when the author could have used a different word but he chooses to use this word also it's in the less usual forms of the verb particularly those of you who know Hebrew will understand what I mean by the nifal and the hifil the d- derived stems so the verb to see in the nifal means to appear, in the hifil it means to show. So it's not just that ra'a, the very common verb to see, is being used, but it's being used in less usual forms at significant times. But most of all, we have these two very important statements, one of which we just had read to us in Genesis 16, the er lachai ro'i, um, the well of the living one who sees me, and then Adonai Yireh in Genesis 22, the Lord provides, or the Lord will provide, but the root there is the verb to see. Two cases, and on Philip Hewson's diagram this morning, two key points where the line of Ishmael is threatened but preserved, and the line of Isaac is threatened but preserved. And I was very struck sitting there looking at the diagram thinking, yes, that's why we have these two places where somebody gives a name to something and uses the verb to see where you don't have to. 
It's not obvious that the verb to see is the one to use in these cases, but in both cases it is. So I'm going to give a survey now of Ra'ah in the Abraham narratives, which means I'm going to go very quickly through the Abraham narratives and show you how this verb is used. Almost all of them, but not all of them, as I say, there are some cases where I think it just means to see and there's no significance to it. So we begin in Genesis 12, verse 1, where God says, as we heard this morning, dramatically he commands Abraham to go, but he doesn't say go to the land that I will give to you or give to your descendants. He says go to to the land that I will show you, which is the verb to see in the Hiphiel stem, which means I will cause you to see it. I will show you. Go to the land that I will show you. And in that same chapter we have... A reference to this terebinth of Moray and Moray does not come from the root Ra'ah but it sounds a bit as if it does and I'll come back to the significance of that later on then in chapter 12 verse 7 the Lord appeared to Abraham which is the Nifal of the same root Ra'ah to see moving further on then in chapter 12 the Egyptians saw Sarah's appearance and you can see here mare is the word for appearance but it's a noun derived from the same root ra'ah the Egyptians saw Sarah's appearance chapter 13 Lot looked up this phrase he raised his eyes more literally he looks up and he sees the plain of Jordan contrast that with verse 14 after Lot has gone God then appears to Abraham again and he encourages him to look up and look to but literally in Hebrew see all the four points of the compass and then the Lord says to Abraham I will give you all the land at which you are looking or literally which you are seeing so This seeing verb is very important in terms of the promises, particularly the promise of the land. It's the land which God will show Abraham. You will have all the land that you are now seeing. However, interestingly, and I'll come back to this, in chapter 15, when God says to Abraham, look at the stars, he does not use the verb ra'ah. He uses navat. Um, Sorry, that should be navat, Oh, it is, it is Narvat. There was a speck of dust on my screen that made it look like a gimbal. <laughs> um, so why does he not use Ra'ah there? That's an interesting question I'll come back to. Chapter 16. I asked Moston to read this because it's very rich with Ra'ah motifs. When Hagar saw that she had conceived, she realised. Um, then she started to taunt Sarah and so on. So... Sarah gets permission from Abraham to throw her out and Hagar runs off into the desert and she's at the point of despair but then God appears to her, miraculously preserves her life. Hagar called the Lord the God of seeing, El Roi, the God of seeing. And then she called the place the well of the living one who sees me. So the Ra'ah motif is very, very strong, almost you could say at its strongest in chapter 16. Chapter 17 and 18, the Lord appeared to Abraham again. 18, Abraham looked up, raised his eyes and saw three men approaching. But when the three men 
after the meal and the meeting with Abraham and they go and uh, look to Sodom, it's a different verb. It's sharkath. They looked down towards Sodom. And similarly, Abraham looked down towards Sodom. Different root. Although, the Ra'ah root is in there, but it's quite striking that a different root is used when it's talking about this, the context of judgment going to fall on Sodom. And then similarly, when Lot is fleeing from Sodom, he is urged not to look back, but the, the verb is not Ra'ah, it's Navat. And Lot's wife, unfortunately, does look back, but it's not Ra'ah, it's Navat again. Now, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not prepared to die for this, but I think this is significant, and I'll try and make a case out for that later. Chapter 21, Hagar says, Let me not see the boy's death. So the Lord opens her eyes. So she saw a well. And then chapter 22, the name Moriah, Moriah, again, it's not from the root Ra'ah, but it sounds like it is. And the Hebrew writers weren't too fussed about whether things actually etymologically come from a particular root. If they sound like they do, that's good enough. And what you have in 22.2 is Moriah, and it forms an inclusio with More back in chapter 12. And so 12 to 22 is kind of bracketed in this way by the use of two place names that sound similar, and they also happen to sound like they come from the root Ra'ah. So Abraham then raises his eyes, he looks up and he sees the place where he is supposed to sacrifice Isaac. But he says that God will provide for himself the sacrifice. Now the verb there, to provide, is actually ra'ah, to see. It's an idiomatic use. And in English we do have this expression, I will see to it, or he will see to it. And that's quite close, in a way, to this, this sort of the use of the verb to see, meaning to provide. Abraham looks up, raises his eyes, and sees the ram. And then he names the place Adonai Yireh, the Lord will provide. And the editorial comment then, using the nifal, it shall be provided. But it could be, it will be seen, or he will be seen, even. I'm not going to say any more about that because James is going to deal with chapter 22 later on this afternoon. Now I also need to mention, just before we try and sort of make something out of all this, that it doesn't stop at the end of the Abraham narratives. That Ra'ah as a motif does carry on. And I would argue that it does so because it is echoing the Abraham narrative. So just as Sarah was of good appearance, and that's what the Egyptians saw, so we find that Rebecca is also described as being of good appearance in chapter 24 and 26. Same word, mare, from the root to see. Jacob comes from Be'er Lachai Ro'i and he looks up, he raises his eyes and he sees the servant bringing Rebecca. And then Rebecca raises her eyes, she looks up and she sees Isaac. The Lord appears to Isaac in, twice in chapter 26 and also in chapter 35 he appears to Jacob. Jacob on the run looks up, raises his eyes and finds a well in the desert. Jacob wrestling 
with the angel of God, the angel of the Lord, called the place uh, Penuel or Peniel because he had seen Ra'a, God, face to face. So we're having the same kind of use of Ra'a in the same kind of context, contexts in the subsequent narratives that we had in the Abraham narratives. Jacob and Esau look up, raise their eyes and see each other. So, having surveyed this, what do we make of it then? And I want to suggest it, that the, the verb ra'a, to see, is used to convey three particular, very important, big theological ideas. The first is the idea of self-revelation. Ra'a, the verb ra'a, is particularly used in the Nifal, in the Enstem, for God's revelation of himself, God revealing himself to his people. And this is the grammar. It's very fascinating, the nifal of the verb ra'a, because the nifal has a wide range of, of meanings. It can be passive, to be seen. It can be reflexive, to see oneself. It's obviously not either of those. It can be a middle, get seen, or a tolerative, allow oneself to be seen, or even an adjectival, be visible. But it's none of those things with this particular verb. In fact, um, Walker O'Connor, Bruce Walker, um, and uh, who is it, O'Connor, who wrote the book with him? Anyway, the um, grammatical analysis of biblical Hebrew, they describe this as a causative reflexive. And they're none the wiser, nor am I. Make oneself be seen. I just think it's like a Greek deponent verb. It's, a, it's passive middle in form, but it's an act- active in meaning, but it's very unusual I don't know, somebody might be able to tell me if there are any other nifals that are active in meaning. Oh, this because there's nilcham, isn't there, to fight. But it's still quite unusual. And this verb is used for God revealing himself. And a, a comparison can be made with the, the same verb in the same stem used in human interaction where Joseph presents himself to Jacob in Genesis 46:29. He reveals himself. So he's the active one making himself known to a person who doesn't know him. And so that's the motif here. In the Abraham narratives and subsequent narratives, God is revealing himself, making himself known to people who otherwise would not know him. He's revealing himself. And the significance of this, it might seem like I'm saying something glaringly obvious, and perhaps I am. But I think the significance of this is Moses is putting all this together for a generation that has been formed, a nation that has been born out of God's self-revelation. First in the burning bush in Exodus 3, then in Exodus 16 at Sinai, and subsequently in all those references in Leviticus and Numbers, the Lord appears, same word, Ra'a in the Nifal, in the tabernacle. So, The significance of this is that God inaugurated the covenant with Israel, with the people of Israel, through the mediation of Moses, in acts of self-revelation. And so what Moses is saying in his writing or compiling of the Genesis narrative is that this is how God did it with Abraham. He initiated a covenant with Abraham in exactly the same way through self-revelation. He appeared to Abraham. 
And so, of course, for those first generation and second generation Israelites, this is very, very resonant for them, that this was their experience, and it begins with Abraham, God revealing himself to Abraham. Also, this idea of a self-revealing God, associated particularly with this verb in the Nifal, is a verb associated with theophany, God appearing. And you find it particularly in Judges 6 and 13, 2 Chronicles 3. This is the verb used there where there is a theophany, God appearing. And therefore, when we look at Genesis 18 and those three individuals appearing to Abraham at his tent, there God is seeing the God, uh, Abraham is seeing the God who appears to him. It's theophanic. Genesis 32, Jacob sees the God who appears to him. And Rudolf Knierim, in um, The Task of Old Testament Theology, makes this very interesting comment, which you might want to discuss afterwards. He, said the, he says, the, this is abbreviated what he says, the correlate for revelation is not faith, but sight. The correlate for revelation is not faith, but sight. And what he means, I think, is that when God reveals himself, what happens in the human being is sight. They see. Not that they believe, but they see. Um, and I want to come back to this idea, the whole question of faith in the Abraham narratives versus revelation, or plus revelation, depending on which way we look at it. Um, in other words, people don't have a choice whether to accept it or whether to believe it or not, because when God reveals himself, they see him. Which is perhaps not how we tend to think of revelation. The second thing, very closely related, so there's re God's revelation of himself, but secondly, there is the revelation of his purpose. And Knirim goes on to say that God's revelation always has a goal. It is always purposeful. It always changes history. It always shapes people. It's not, the, the emphasis is not on the objectivity of God's revelation as the effect and the purpose of God's revelation. So in chapter 12, verse 1, um, where the Lord says to Abraham, go to the land that I will show you, he is now revealing Abraham, uh, to, to Abraham not just himself, but he's revealing his plan for humanity. And he's doing that so that Abraham will act upon that um, and God's plan will come to pass. Now there's a very pointed contrast here with, in, in chapter 13 with Lot. Because Lot sees, same verb, he sees the desirable land near Sodom. And also the Egyptians see Sarah because she is beautiful of appearance. And that's the seeing which is um, purely human. You see something that's desirable and you want to acquire it. So there's a contrast with that kind of seeing. seeing. And you see it particularly in this phrase that where characters lift up their eyes. They look up and they see something. And what they see is their destiny. So Abraham looks up and he sees the three men coming. Or um, Hagar looks up and she sees the well. Or Jacob looks up and he sees his wife-to-be. Or Isaac looks up rather and sees Rebecca approaching him. She looks up and sees him. So when you have that phrase, they raise their eyes and see. It's not just that they're seeing something 
physical, a person, an object, an event, a town, a city, but they're in, in that they are seeing their destiny and they are seeing God's purpose for them. So that it is a spiritual seeing, not just as well as a physical seeing. So then this brings me back to the question, why then? It seems so obvious that the, the author of Genesis should use Ra'ah in chapter 15 when God says, look up to the heavens and see the stars. You know, am I now, does my whole case come crashing down because it's the verb Navat used there, not Ra'ah? And I think it doesn't because God is not promising Abraham the stars. When God shows Abraham the land, he is promising him the land. But when he shows him the stars, it's just by way of illustration, isn't it? Your descendants will be like the stars. And so I think that's why it's a different verb used. Navat is, has a lot of overlap with Ra. It's a less common verb. Very often it's synonymous. When it's not, it means to look intently in a particular direction. But I think he, he could easily have used Ra. But I think he uses Navat because God is not revealing at this point that Abraham is going to inherit the stars. He's saying something slightly different, but you can take me up on that if you want. And then the third thing related to this, there's a sort of progression here. God reveals himself, then God reveals his purposes to individuals, and then God providentially cares for individuals in order to preserve his purposes. So in chapter 16 and 21, Hagar's life is preserved. God sees her. He watches over her. Um, this dispute over the translation of Roi, God of seeing, literally, either God who sees or God who can be seen. Or you could repoint it as a participle with the first singular suffix, God who sees me. That doesn't really affect the argument. And interestingly, this is the only case in the Old Testament of a person giving a name to God. If before you came in this afternoon I'd said to you, what is the only case in the Old Testament of a person giving a name to God, you would not have said Hagar, I don't, I don't think. Very interesting. So she's giving a name to God which encapsulates the fact that God sees her and providentially cares for her but is doing that to providentially care for, preserve his purposes. Similarly in chapter 22, he provides a sacrifice, again, and preserves Isaac's life because his purpose is through the line of Isaac as we've seen. And again, I think this then explains the reticence to use the verb ra'ah in the context of judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and also when Lot is fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah. I think the author there is deliberately using another root, another term, because he's trying to preserve the ra'ah root for the particular uh, purposes he has for Abraham and through Abraham for the whole world. But as I say, I'm not going to you know, stake my life on that, but it, it is interesting that the different verbs are used. So my conclusions are, first of all, that there is a Ra'a motif in the Abraham narratives. That Ra'a is used not just frequently, but it's used in interesting, theologically rich ways. It's used in unusual ways. It's used particularly in, in two names that are given to places at key moments in the narrative that, that they, there is a Ra'a motif. 
that it's a theological motif and that, and that the theology behind it is that there is a God who reveals himself and by extension he reveals his purposes for the individuals to whom he's revealing himself and that providentially he cares for those people so as to preserve those purposes and ensure that they come to pass. So it's a theological, not just a literary motif. It's to do with the meaning of the Abraham narratives. It's not just a stylistic thing to uh, make you smile if you happen to be reading through the Abraham narratives in Hebrew. So, now I'm going to step in where angels fear to tread and, and spell out what I think are some of the implications of this. And the first one is this, that we tend to see the Abraham story as being about faith. And that was uh, raised as a question very helpfully this, in the discussion this morning. And I confess that when I preached a series on the life of Abraham, it was all about faith. And the reason I did that is because of Romans 4, Galatians 3 and 4, Hebrews 11 and James 2. Because I had assumed, because in those places the New Testament writers make much of Abraham's faith, that that means that Abraham's story is about faith. But the New Testament writers, although they do rightly make a lot of Abraham's faith, that's not, the, not to say that they are saying that the Abraham story as a whole is about faith. I think that this use of Ra'ah suggests that revelation is the overarching idea in the Abraham narratives. And therefore, if I were to begin preaching a series on Abraham next Sunday, this would be my overarching motif. I would be looking for this idea of revelation as the guiding principle behind all the passages I'm dealing with. And I think this is the emphasis in Hebrews 11, verse 13 particularly. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. They were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And I was very struck by Andrew's um, comment this morning um, that you look at Romans 11 and you think Paul is playing fast and loose and then you look again at Genesis and you realise, oh no, I just didn't read Genesis. And that has happened to me so many times. You look again at the Old Testament and think, ah oh, yes, Paul saw something, Matthew saw something I hadn't seen. And I think here the writer of the Hebrews has seen something. Excuse the pun. Um, they they didn't possess the promises. The whole point is that in Abraham's life and even the life of Jacob and Isaac, they are seeing things because God is revealing them, but they're not really participating in them in the way that Israel would after Exodus. And of course, for an Israelite of the Exodus generation or subsequent generations, they would look back and think, yes, that's what that phase, that 480 years or whatever, was all about. It was about seeing it was about these things being shown, but not the possession of them. So, sticking my neck out a little bit further, I think our tendency, particularly with Old Testament narratives, is that we tend to preach about characters, human beings, rather than about what God is doing in a passage. And 
It's very tempting. And if we just take um, Genesis 16, that story of uh, Hagar and Ishmael that Mostyn read a few verses from. There's so much psychological realism in that. You can easily get caught up with the psychology between the characters, how desperate Sarah is for a child and so she goes to this resort and Abraham goes along with it, doesn't want to upset his wife, maybe he's got qualms about it, maybe he hasn't, text doesn't say that of course. Um, and then she has the baby and it all has gone horribly, horribly pear-shaped because now the servant is lording it over the mistress and all the rest of it and you can get caught up in all that and you can preach no doubt helpful sermons about all sorts of aspects of faith and conduct it's not about that is it that chapter is about the fact that God has a purpose for Ishmael and he will preserve that purpose that is the sole reason why he saves Hagar's life to preserve his purpose for Ishmael, which is something to do with his covenant with Abraham. And so we look at that chapter and say, what is God doing? And we can see that because there are these big statements using the verb ra'ah, telling us what's going on. So, what are the Abraham narratives about? They are about God's revelation. Because without God's revelatory activity, there is no Abraham story. It doesn't matter how good a person Abraham was, whatever his qualities were or anything, if God did not reveal himself to Abraham, if God did not appear to Abraham in Genesis 12, there is no Abraham story. It's not about Abraham, it's about God. The characters are merely there to see God's purposes unfolding. And so we can see that through them and we can enter into their experience so long as that's what we are looking at primarily what God is doing. And even when it's the case of God preserving the lives of his people, he's preserving the lives of the people that he has chosen so as to ensure the success of the purpose he has revealed. Because otherwise, there's a great danger that you can preach Genesis 16 and give people some kind of hope that God will preserve their lives because this is the kind of God is that God is and look what he did for Hagar and that's not what that chapter is saying at all it's not giving a general truth that God preserves people's lives it's giving a particular truth that God preserved Hagar's life because he had a purpose for Ishmael and God's revelation is I couldn't think of a better word you can tell me a better word afterwards operational in the lives of his people. When God reveals himself, it's never for anybody's amusement and it's never to get something off his chest. When God reveals himself and his purposes to people, it's to change history and to change them. And again, as I hinted earlier, I think we've tended to, because of all the arguments about the Bible, the inspiration of the Bible and, and so on, we've tended to objectivize revelation as if it's all about the the revealing of objective truth and maybe we've lost the fact the sort of biblical idea that actually God reveals himself so as to change lives people situations history it's it's an active thing that shapes and molds history it's not just the declaration of precepts or truths that people can take or leave and I think that's the lot Thank you.